Welcome to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. Brought to you by Ospin and Fresenius Carby. We are your hosts. I'm Bridie. And I'm Emily. And we are accredited practicing dietitians. We don't have all the answers. So each episode, we will deliver insightful conversations with our nutrition leaders who help us navigate the ever-changing world of clinical nutrition. This podcast takes you on a deep dive into evidence-based nutrition and what it means to be a nutrition professional. Together, we will find the answers to your questions, shine a spotlight on our nutrition colleagues, and help you create an impact in your nutrition career. In this season, we talk with leading nutrition professionals who share their expertise in oncology, enteral and parenteral nutrition. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and is for educational purposes only. Always consult a healthcare professional prior to providing or accepting any clinical interventions. So if we have a patient who we're considering starting enteral feeds on, um, is it common to come across barriers when we're advocating for the insertion of a feeding tube? And, and what are some good strategies that we can put in place to improve that? It, it is very common, Friday. I think it's one of our biggest challenges sometimes, depending on the area that you work in. So I think some of the barriers are around... I guess, firstly, not really understanding the indication for it, not thinking that the patient's all that bad in terms of what they're eating or that maybe they don't look malnourished because their BMI is not under 18.5. So there's the challenges of understanding, I guess, the, the condition of the patient in the first instance. So from that perspective, I think having discussions with the, the medical team and the nurses about saying that the patient is malnourished or they're severely malnourished or they are at risk of developing malnutrition. We don't have to wait for it for them to become malnourished before we do anything. Um, but talk about the risks associated with that so that people do understand. Um, and I think also a lack of understanding of exactly how much food people are requiring during their illness or even any condition, just longer term generally, I think, um, you know, as I said before, seeing somebody eat looks like a sign of success when it is a drop in the water compared to what they actually need. So having some discussions around quantities, um, I often find that, you know, if someone's having one oral nutrition supplement or two a day saying, look, you would actually need to drink seven or eight of those if you were to have what you needed every single day and just trying to quantify things, but also letting the, the team know that as well. Um, and I think another barrier is the, the, I guess, the tube insertion itself or the, the, I guess, the responsibility around making a decision about a, a tube insertion um, is up to the doctors to make that call. And I think the attitudes towards it, it can sometimes be a problem. I think it really needs to be viewed as part of the treatment or recovery for a lot of conditions. And ideally that would be something that the multidisciplinary team has established as part of care, as opposed to the dietitian single-handedly asking for a patient to have a nasogastric tube. Um, I really think that if that, that decision is made as part of a team, perhaps and ideally in a, in a previously agreed guideline or pathway is probably the best approach. Uh, I think without that, you, you're having different battles every day with different people on your own. And I think um, bigger picture sometimes takes to step back and look at what are we doing? Who do we need to um, provide feeding tubes for? And think a bit more sort of systems um, level approach as opposed to one-on-one -on -one conversations all the time. 
if that makes sense. And I think as, as someone, perhaps if you're new to a hospital um, or any sort of clinical setting, getting help with those conversations because they're not easy. They aren't when you start. They still aren't. Um, for us, I'm sure Kate would agree, they can be challenging. So getting the help you need to have the right discussions with the right people, I think, um, would be my advice. Absolutely. And I think leaning on what you said before, but I guess rather than an enteral intake, uh, an oral intake, making sure we're aware of that cumulative deficit and really using that um, as evidence to support us advocating for that tube placement. Yeah. And, and data, like I still remember distinctly when one of my big wins when I was a junior dietitian was mapping out um, weight and oral intake and feeds which were being malabsorbed to try and get some TPN started and, and mapping out that journey and showing this is where we're failing every single time um, actually helped us get where we needed to get to because I think a lot of the time people look at the week they're looking after the patient the doctors not all the day they're looking after them and the bigger picture can get lost so tracking that data and being able to communicate it's really important for sure Kate did you have anything you wanted to add no just echo that it's all about the data and the evidence Kate, this question follows on nicely from uh, what Lisa's been discussing. We also often come across problems with de-plumbing and removing the tubes, as we touched on earlier. And one of the uh, reasons for this that gets discussed, I think, amongst the MDT is the appetite-suppressing effect of enteral nutrition. Do you think it does suppress appetite or how do you think we best overcome these barriers? It really defies logic because it, it seems logical that if you're feeding someone continuously, then they're not going to have that opportunity to build up an appetite. But, but the evidence actually shows that continuous or intermittent or enteral nutrition of any sort doesn't really have much of an effect on appetite. That said, um, when I personally am managing someone through that transition from tube feeding to uh, oral intake without a tube, despite there being a lack of evidence for it, I do switch to overnight feeds because it, it just makes sense that they're going to eat better when they're not being constantly fed. I think also it's not when you're feeding, it's also what, because I did find one study that showed that there was an appetite-suppressing effect of enteral nutrition when they were supplementing that nutrition with fibre. So again, if it is a very high fibre formula, potentially it is going to have an appetite suppressing effect. But all of the other literature that I've looked at, and in particular Danny Bear in the UK has done a lot of work into continuous versus intermittent um, enteral nutrition. And yeah, there's really not much about appetite. Great, thank you. And I guess then it, it comes back to what we've, a bit of a theme we've had, you know, the, our relationships with the MDT and, and as Lisa said, really establishing the um, plans before we come across these discussions on a daily basis. So lobbying the team, presenting the evidence and, and tracking the cumulative intake so we have data to show them uh, so that we're not flying blind. Oh, yeah. As you said, there are so many specialised formulas available to us now and I guess when you're considering using one of them you probably really do need to look at the evidence because for a lot of these formulas there isn't a great deal of evidence and potentially not enough to justify the increase 
cost. Um, with that said, of course, it is a case-by-case -case decision. Um, needs to be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, sorry. And there are some evidence for some specialised formulas. So maybe if I touch on some of the specialised formulas we use at the Austin, maybe Lisa can follow me with what they do at the Alfred. But certainly we do use a renal-specific formula for a patient who is either pre-renal, so awaiting sort of renal replacement therapy for intermittent peritoneal or hemodialysis, if their electrolytes are abnormal. So we would use a standard chick alpha mil feed if their electrolytes were stable on that, but if required, we'd switch to you know, a renal formula with those lowered levels of um, potassium or phosphate as needed. Obviously, for somebody on the filter and ICU, there is no requirement for a fluid or electrolyte-restricted formula. So we do use renal feeds. Obviously, we use concentrated feeds for anybody who's needing a fluid or volume restriction, so liver patients or um, patients with cardiac failure who are needing fluid restriction or, I guess, anybody who's overloaded. So two cal feeds um, obviously have a role. We use, we're at the Austin, a liver transplant centre. So for our patients in ICU who have grade 4 encephalopathy, we do use a branch chain amino acid supplemented formula. For the commercial formulas marketed towards liver disease are actually very expensive. So we kind of make up our our own. We just use standard 2 calcium mil feed and then flush branch chain amino acids separately um, due to the evidence of, of the benefit of the branch chains in decreasing ammonia. We also use immune enhancing formulas for our patients that are post upper GI and head and neck cancer surgery. There is some now quite old and somewhat weak evidence to support decreased risk of post-operative infection with the use of these immune-enhancing formulas for the first five to seven days post-op. So we use them, but what we don't use are any sort of respiratory formulas that are marketed to get people off the ventilator quicker. We don't use them, and we don't use any um, diabetic-specific formulas. Thanks, Kate. Ours is actually quite similar apart from some of the um, specialties that are unique to the Austin. We also don't use the respiratory or the um, diabetic formulas either. We did some time ago, but not no longer. Um, we actually don't use uh, immunonutrition at this point. I would like to revise that. Uh, there's always new evidence and new guidelines and different things that are worth re-looking at. Um, but for the same reason, I guess Kate said the evidence is quite limited and we, we decided we didn't do it. Um, but I think it is worth always re-looking at new data and considering whether that should be something that we do do. Um, with the other patients, um, we don't do liver transplants, so we don't have a liver-specific formula. Um, but our, I guess our focus is a lot on the high-protein formulas. So with our uh, large ICU specifically with the burns population requiring higher protein. Uh, more and more patients are obese, of course. So those in ICU 
um, who have propofol contributing to their energy source. We would have a low energy, high protein formula for those patients. Uh, and of course, our surgical patients, we use high protein formulas in as well. So that is our main focus, really. So you're both PEG credential dietitians. Can you give us a brief overview of the service and how it helps you to provide high quality care to your patients? Maybe we'll start with you, Lisa. Yeah, so PEG credentialing means that we are able um, have to undergo competencies uh, in order to change feeding tubes and so not insert um, gastrostomy feeding tubes, I should say. And that requires, I guess, the maintenance of it and troubleshooting any issues and overseeing the, the tube care as well as the patient, of course, and their actual nutrition as well. Um, so I guess what that allows us to do is, well, the reason I really like it is because it, it allows us to care for every aspect of the patient independently. Of course, we, we work with the gastroenterologists very closely, uh, but it is something that we are experts in. And I think hopefully uh, we have respect in that area that we have the knowledge to um, manage the patients who, who require gastrostomy feeding tubes. So we work yeah, very closely with um, gastroenterology. We have a fortnightly clinic there where our patients come into PEG clinic and we see them in that clinic where we will have PEG dietitians and um, gastro registrars and consultants and we'll use that opportunity to train upcoming credentialing dietitians in there as well. And we also work very closely with interventional radiology to uh, book our patients in for tube changes and troubleshoot any issues that we may have um, with with the tube itself and, um, and the patient's management. That's across both sites. We've got sort of a similar setup at our um, acquired brain injury unit at Caulfield. We have weekly or fortnightly PEG rounds there as well with our PEG credential dietitians and the gastroenterologist also. Great, thanks. And that, it must be great from a patient perspective as well to really have, as you say, one clinician who can care for all aspects and, and of course, integrate with the MDT as necessary. Yeah, I think. that's right. And I should so add, great. sorry, I always leave out the um, outreach service. We have an outreach service for patients in um, residential care or sort of high care equivalents um, as well in their homes too. So we look after them as an outreach program. Fantastic. Thank you. And what about at the Austin, Kate? But ours runs a little bit differently. So we run a weekly hen clinic um, just through the dietetics department. So it's staffed by credentialed dietitians only. And we don't have any gastro backup. Um, but that said, if we run into trouble, they, they know that we're running our clinic then and um, backup, I guess. Um, but it's been really great for us because we, before we had, you know, dietitians doing the tube management, we kind of felt a bit like we were just middlemen. So the patients would call us and say, my tube's fallen out or there's this issue with my tube. And we'd be like, oh, okay, well, you need to go to ED or you need to call the gastro wrench and we couldn't do anything about it. But now that we can, it just feels easier for everyone involved when you can just deal with the issue yourself rather than having to outsource. Fantastic. So benefits for the clinicians as well as the patients. That's great. So you guys have both given us fantastic tips already, but is there anything extra you would like to share in terms of um, those really great troubleshooting ideas for when we're managing patients on enteral nutrition or um, when we're thinking about um, insertion of tubes as well from the PEG credentialing work that you've both done? I think my top tip would have to be individualise it. There is no one thing that works for every single patient. 
and also to always involve the patient in their care. Yeah, I was going to say exactly the same thing, actually. I think um, when you're trying to work out what type of enteral regimen, what type of feeding tube, I think finding out the details of the patient's day, what they do when they can feasibly be on the feeds, um, don't even have the dexterity to do bolus feed. So bolus feeding might be indicated, but if they can't do it, they might need a feeding pump or vice versa. If they can't work the pump, then you've only got boluses. So I think it is really um, understanding where they're coming from and finding a way to be really accessible, particularly early on once you send someone home. I think as dietitians, well, I guess anyone in a hospital, you can run around like a headless chook at times trying to get things done. And if you don't slow down and take time with your hen patients, particularly on discharge and really educate, take time to make sure they understand, provide written information or videos or you know, it's so foreign to them. They really need that extra support and just to make sure that there are ways that they can come back and ask questions and um, be be available to, to help them through it because they can be very anxious to this foreign idea of going home with a tube up their nose or in their stomach. So um, that's probably the main thing apart from all the day-to-day sort of dietetics and medical stuff. It's really thinking of them as if that was you and you didn't know anything about it. It'd be pretty overwhelming, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So obviously addressing their nutrition and hydration in terms of the regimen we provide, but really making sure that we consider what's practical um, and what's going to fit in for that patient and, and taking into those, taking into account those individual factors um, to, to deliver that patient-centered care. Yeah, and that sometimes might mean doing something a little bit differently too. I think um, particularly when you first start out doing an enteral regimen, you think, oh, this is perfect. I've you know got everything I need, but adjusting it to, you know, I don't know, maybe doing 800 mils of that bag and two boluses of this or just mixing things up a bit when they go home. You just need to think of it differently than your standard textbook sort of feeding regimen, yeah. And sometimes they might have suggestions about what would work better too. Yeah, I think that's always always really good, taking the patient's lead and, and sort of filling in the gaps between what you both think. And in the coming years, are there any changes that you foresee in terms of enteral nutrition delivery or services? In, in the future, I was thinking about... Um, I guess greater visibility on what the patients are providing at home. So some sort of, you know, platform where we can see what's being delivered, um, feedback around that type of thing and maybe better monitoring at home with some sort of, yeah, I don't know, some virtual space where we can do reviews um, a bit more easily, particularly for rural patients, I think would be good. Um, Absolutely. And personally, I'd like to, and this is a bit of a bias of mine, but um just improve the our knowledge of the body composition of patients once we start feeds, particularly when they are malnourished when we start and they gain weight. I think, you know, we, we probably know that they're gaining fat mass, but I'd like to do a lot more work around focusing on maintaining or gaining muscle and um, trying to improve their function as well, not just weight on the scales. So I think trying to embed that somehow into home mental nutrition programs a bit more regularly would be useful. Maybe people are doing it a lot better than we are. We've got a little bit of work to do in that space, but I think that's um, really important. Absolutely, and so meaningful for the patients. And do you think that would um, require sort of a multidisciplinary approach with physio or exercise physiology or do you have any thoughts on that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it would has to go. It's the missing piece, really, when we're trying to rehabilitate patients. Um, you know, as Kate was saying, the, their ability to improve in their um, hand grip strength really is very important to them, and that translates into other 
I guess, functional um, things that they do during the day. So a combination of physios and nutrition and exercise physiology would be ideal. It'll give us all something to work on. Thank you. Great. <laughs> Kate, did you have anything you wanted to share of what you think the future will hold for enteral nutrition? We're going to start perhaps moving away from the commercial formulas more towards the more natural sort of blenderized foods, um, sort of diets, particularly in the paediatric space. But I don't know what that looks like. Very good. And for those who are keen to upskill in the area of enteral nutrition, what resources um, would you both recommend? Benson has some great guidelines on the use of enteral nutrition. Um, and for those that are DAA members, DAA has some enteral and parenteral support manuals. I know they're currently under review, but they're still a great resource for anybody who's starting out. Yeah, I agree, Kate. The ESPEN guidelines are really good. Um, and with you mentioning DAA, often uh, at their conferences, there's a section on enteral nutrition or gastrostomy feeding tubes or whatever that may be. Um, I think they're really, really beneficial. Um, and similarly, OSPEN have got um, a, a strong focus on enteral nutrition, particularly around the gastroenterology side of things. I think there's often a lot of good um, presentations around the use of EN in different conditions, whether it's gastroenterology or surgery or ICU. Um, they would be very relevant conferences to attend, I think, if you're starting out. Um, but I guess the only other thing to mention was just what I briefly mentioned earlier is if you are just starting out to, to get as much help as possible from more senior people, I think guidelines are really such a starting point and, and there's so many different scenarios that you face when you're um, trying to feed a patient enterally that they're not all covered in all of the guidelines and sometimes we're, you know, we're still um, coming up with new ideas ourselves about how to treat patients. So really just asking all the time to make sure that you've sort of thought of everything for the patient. Great tips. Thank you for sharing those guys. Ladies, thank you both so much for joining us today for the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast. It's been great to chat to you and hear all of your uh, experience and insights. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to the Insights in Clinical Nutrition podcast brought to you by Osman and Fresenius Carby. If you would like to support the podcast, please subscribe to the show and share it with your friends and colleagues. To keep up to date with all the latest from Ospen, you can head over to our website at www.ospen.org.au or email us at podcast at ospen.org.au. 